0: You're listening to Absolute AI. Conversations with the humans behind artificial intelligence, where data scientists, ML researchers, startup founders, and enterprise execs talk about cutting-edge innovations and unique challenges posed by this new technological frontier. Tune in for interviews with leading experts to anticipate trends before they emerge. Hi, thanks for joining us on Absolute AI. I'm your host, Melody Travers, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Elizabeth Pritchard. Elizabeth is a serial innovator, data activist, and analytics-driven executive with over 25 years of experience in data and finance. She was recently named the CEO of Bit4, the leader in AI-driven intelligence from unstructured data. Previously, Elizabeth founded White Rock Data Solutions, where she advised data companies on their product, business development, and go-to-market strategies. Elizabeth is passionate about fostering the adoption of new data sources and tools to drive business outcomes, and is an advocate for girls to pursue STEM education. Elizabeth holds a Bachelor's of Science in Industrial Engineering from Northwestern University, and a master's of science in industrial engineering and an MBA from Columbia University. Welcome to Absolute AI, Elizabeth. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. It's great to be here. So later on, I want to talk about your advocacy for girls pursuing STEM education. But before we get to that, I would love to hear about your journey into STEM
1: and eventually into finance. I guess my journey to STEM And to more technical types of jobs in my career started when I was a small girl and I always wanted to know how things worked and then figure out how to do a better thing, you know, invent a better thing. I was really born with this innovator bug. I'd stay up really late at night reading, searching for new ideas, you know, see the, you know, the future, what's possible, and then figure out how to get there. And so I grew up and I went to college getting my engineering degree outside of Chicago. And then I moved to the East Coast for a job as an engineer in a manufacturing plant. Oh, interesting. Yeah, And so, um, I did that and, um, really got sort of the bug for engineering. And actually, interestingly, my very first manager said to me, you know, like the first day on the job, he said, listen, when you come here in the morning, you've got to put on your thick skin. That is a lesson that is, and that's wisdom that has really resonated, if you will, throughout my career. So I, my journey went from manufacturing to finance, getting my business degree, and that's where I met a woman a technologist who worked at Goldman Sachs, and uh, she introduced me to senior leaders at the firm, and that's how I began my journey on Wall Street. i always seeking out those positions that were engineering-oriented, technology-oriented, data-oriented, and I think that also comes out from uh, the early parts of my career in manufacturing, where I learned very much so to focus on what's really happening and learn to be data-driven and let the data do the talking and always be fact-based in decision-making. You know, what are the facts saying? And then take that into the innovation kind of stream uh, or talent, I guess, that I had across bringing together people, process, and technology solutions to, you know, affect data-driven results. And that, I guess, brings me to today, my journey through finance and through startup land to, uh, to bid for.
0: I just wanted to talk a little bit about your time at Goldman Sachs because you were there for almost 20 years and held many leadership positions, the last of which was global head of market data services. So, again, you've had that data type of role so over such a long tenure at, at one firm, what were some of the most interesting evolutions that you saw internally at Goldman Sachs and then externally just in the financial industry overall, especially as it relates to data and data-driven innovation and artificial intelligence?
1: So I took my love for data through manufacturing to finance into to Goldman and um I worked with, as you can imagine, over near 20 years, I worked with every kind of data imaginable, whether it's, you know, payments, whether it's the trading flows, trade settlements, trade positions, risk data, whether it it was when I came into market data, whether it was, you know, prices and fundamental data, and then the world of alternative data and i really enjoyed the whole notion of hey you can learn about the economy from sources other than a specific company doing the reporting about a company you can learn about the performance of a company from all of these what we're calling today alternative data sources and i encountered alternative data oh a good you know 10 plus 12 years ago when some of the innovative quant teams across the firm, whether it was you know looking across the internet for data or whether they were looking at some of the leading edge vendors who were providing information about companies that you wouldn't get in some of the classic company reporting data sets. And so that to me kind of began my love for the whole alternative data space and this idea of, being able to evaluate a company, what a company is doing from the outside in, if you will. So you take the fundamental data and then you take this whole world of new data sources. I think there's like 25, 26 different types now of alternative data, credit card data and trade flows and trucking and shipments and location-based data. There's multiple, multiple different types of alternative data, including our own here at Bitfor, which we'll talk about in a little bit, That whole discovery, if you will, of this world of data that can describe not only companies, actually, but also how economies are performing. Climate, we'll talk about that in a little bit, what's happening kind of in in the environment, in this whole move towards a greener world, you know, being able to mine the data in the world that's being made available at an ever-increasing rate, that was the beginning of an amazing, very interesting journey. And then the application To extract the value from that data of quantitative models as well as machine learning models and deep learning models has been just a fascinating, fascinating thread through my time, uh, my career in finance. All the way through the data value chain, all the way through the, the modeling value chain to the, let's call it answer, or the intelligence that can then be used by decision makers to improve outcomes in their businesses or in their, you know, investing strategies.
0: Can you just give me an example of a use case or or company where the sort of traditional data painted one story and then alternative data painted quite another or filled in the picture in a way that was unexpected and and helpful?
1: So there are all different kinds of use cases out there. I'm trying to think which one's going to be... uh, sort of the most impactful, but I can kind of give a couple of ideas out there. So there can be, let's just go into the unstructured world for a little bit. You can look at a company, say you're underwriting a company for a commercial insurance. And the company, you know, it looks good from all sort of financial performance aspects. It's a commercial insurer that is underwriting a private company that is you know, let's just pick an industry. I don't know, a real, let's pick a retailer. And everything looks good, okay? The company's been growing. They're uh, moving from one insurer to the next. The underwriter is looking at, you know, their loss history and things are looking pretty good. Then they start to look at the unstructured world. So from typical financial performance, metrics, income statement, cash flows, balance sheet information, revenue growth, everything looks okay. Then they start looking at the unstructured world and they get a hint that there's something going on with the company being a bit litigious. So they can look at then uh lawsuit history and they can see, well, wait a second, this company it has a uh, track record of being very litigious. And filing claims and taking on a very strongly litigious position, making them very difficult to do business with. I'm not saying that they were right or wrong. Sure. But it was a part of the, a new part of the risk evaluation of a company that without AI and unstructured data, they were not able to easily come up with this insight. Now that they have the insight, they can figure out whether that is it's material or not, right? Maybe it's just a, hey, be aware of this, or maybe it's a, "Mm, maybe we're going to pass on this. But the AI applied to the unstructured text gave them the insights, which, uh, you know, until that point, they didn't realize that. So that's kind of one example. I mean, other examples are in the whole ESG space, where companies are actually saying, maybe you look at the world of net zero pledges,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they're saying we super care about the environment, and they're reporting that, and they have a marketing campaign around that. Everything's green, right? <laughs> everything's green. Everything's looking, you know, super rosy, and you know, we're yeah. on top of it. But then you look at well. What are their investments in green energy? What are their low-carbon emission energy solutions? In the lawsuit space, we can look at that again. What's happening with respect to their track record in polluting the environment? And are they subject to lawsuits? So the AI applied to unstructured text, news, blogs, scientific journals— the AI applied to that corpus of knowledge, if you will, that's available in the world, can extract and inform investors or underwriters or you name it, who are looking at that company and can say, are they walking their talk? Are they, in fact, living up to their promise, like their advertising and Marketing messaging and their company reporting are saying all these great things, but yet, what's the ground game? What's the reality of what they're actually doing? And so those claims a company's making are now subject to much more scrutiny in the world because of the more advanced capabilities of the AI tools that are available to scour, you know huge amounts of information really quickly so that you can really much more accurately judge whether or not a company is actually living up to their claims. You
0: know, there's structured data and unstructured data, as you were saying, and more of data in the world is this kind of unstructured, right? So just to help our listeners and and me, let's frame it up a little bit and talk about like, what are some of the challenges of all of this? Un- like, what is unstructured data? data and what are the challenges of actually extracting information out of it and you know what goes into the models and that will bring us to bit 4 i think because uh which you were recently um named ceo congratulations thank you and uh let's back up and then i want to know like why you were interested in uh in joining this company
1: yeah so i'll touch upon the um the structured data and the unstructured data. So, and I'll talk through the lens of finance, the financial industry. So historically, structured data has been heavily leveraged, and you've just got to have certain data to be in business as a financial institution. So you need balance sheet income statement cash flow, right? If you're if you're looking at investing in companies, for example, you need event data. Company event data. When are they announcing the earnings or dividends and things like this? You need price data so that you know what's happening in the markets. Price discovery is very important. Those are examples. Corporate actions would be another one, of course. So, those are examples of data that have been available for decades. And to be a financial institution where you're investing in securities, it's just data that you must have. Now, what's been happening. And some firms, you know, have been totally the leaders in this space, and they've been using new data sources beyond these data sources that I've mentioned, these structured data sources for decades. Some really early leaders have been using unstructured data and what we can call alternative data. I call it additive data because it's really additive to this structured data. Okay. But um, this whole corpus of data, unstructured data, has been, growing dramatically, especially, as you can imagine, with mobile, with cloud, with all of these new sources of blogging and Twitter and Facebook, and you know multiple sources, the whole internet, with the growth of the internet, multiple massive sources of unstructured data. And if you look at some of the trend charts, we're still at the beginning of that growth of unstructured data. So there's a lot of knowledge and information locked up in this unstructured data. And so how do you get at it? And that is the challenge of artificial intelligence and natural language processing models of which over the last several years with the advent of transformers and the like, tremendous advances have been made to be able to extract relevant knowledge out of the unstructured data. Some of the challenges if you can imagine, right? You have you know unstructured data in the form of news articles, in the form of blogs, social media, scientific journals, you name it, patents, all sorts of filings, UCC filings, all sorts of sources. Now you know company reporting in the whole ESG space. So multiple, multiple sources of different types of unstructured data. And so the challenge is, if you're interested in company performance, you need to be able to extract out the named entities you care about. So you need to be able to read this all of this language. You need to, be able to pull out company names, and you need to be able to resolve that company name to a authoritative name so that you know truly it is IBM or you know truly it is Cisco or you know truly it is the Facebook, right, that is um, the actual entity of interest and be able to tie that in the financial realm to identifiers, security identifiers or, you know, company identifiers. And so you need to be able to pull it out of the article, the text, And resolve it then to the reference, the appropriate reference data company. That's one. And there's been quite a bit of development to be able to do that accurately. Still hard, but to be able to do it accurately. Articles have multiple companies. right? So you may have an article that says a Morgan Stanley analyst has revealed in their study of Netflix, (laughs) right? So you've got Morgan Stanley and you have Netflix, so Which is the relevant entity, yeah, who are they talking right? about? <laughs> who are they talking about right? so there's relevant you know relevancy in terms of the company that's being discussed, and then there's, okay, well, what kinds of events do you care about? Do you care about the knitting club, or do you care about a merger, an acquisition, you know a director, an officer, a hiring, layoffs? hiring trends layoffs, patents, Mm -hmm. material business events. So you need to be able to write, resolve, and extract out only those articles that have the material events you care about. Right. And then there's the well, what is it actually saying? Is it positive or negative towards the specific event? That's very tricky, especially if you have multiple entities. In the article, and you want to ascribe, uh, you know, well, oh, it's positive towards this company that is suing this company. And so you need to be able to resolve which entity is being discussed and whether or not, you know, which language applies to, you know, let's just say company A is suing company B. So, you know, these are just a few of the challenges in trying to extract out then what you're really doing, right, is extracting out information and creating a clean structured data set, which you can then AI ready, bring into machine learning models or, you know, other data analysis to shed more light on that particular company and that particular event.
0: Okay, so there's two different issues. There's sort of the needle in the haystack issue where you've got an enormous amount of data out there and you've got to you've got to find those little needles in the haystack of things that are actually relevant and then you have to understand the relevance of them so are you talking about leveraging ai for the first part too of finding the re- relevant information to help create that structured data and then that structured data is leveraged in a different model for that sort of understanding and
1: insight process yes it's it's um the way we think about it okay is we approach it with multiple models so it's what's the best model for the task so you can kind of imagine like a manufacturing line hardest job i ever had in the world working on a manufacturing line um you can imagine like there's a series of different steps that you need to go through to build a product I think that's a good analogy for extracting structured data out of unstructured text and coming up with insights. So what is the best model, trained model, AI model, for extracting a named entity, for recognizing named entities? Then what is the best model now that you know the entities What is the best model for determining which of the entities is the relevant entity? Then, you know, the Morgan Stanley Netflix example, and then when you look at the language, it's another uh, sentiment model, for example, or multi-entity sentiment model, takes a look at the language around an entity, and is it, you know, favorable, not favorable, neutral? What is it saying? You know let's call it a, uh, a sentiment indicator or score around which entity. So that's another model. So that's just an example of a few models, how they're working together kind of in this little manufacturing line to come up with the cleaned Morgan Stanley, you know, we're talking about Netflix. Let's say it's favorable because subscribers have increased. And so extracting that out of that research report and then creating a clean data set requires multiple models. And then, well, what does the next research report say? Keeping that fresh on an ongoing basis is, is another challenge.
0: I want to turn to Bitfor because I think this is, you know, the main challenge that you guys are taking on. Um, As I said, you were recently named CEO. I'd like to know what attracted you to the company and what initiatives are you really excited about starting off there in this leadership role?
1: So my journey, you know, I was in finance for a long time, as you mentioned, learned a lot, saw a lot of use cases, worked with a lot of use cases in data and, um, one of my favorite parts of you know the innovation and development there was working with the quants. After I left finance and had done a, a short stint in insurance, I wanted to go to startup land and did so at a data delivery startup, working the part of the data value chain, delivering data in very repeatable, highly accurate deliveries to quant funds. And to me, that was super interesting and uh, thoroughly enjoyed that. When I left, I really wanted to get closer to the use case and alternative data. And so I started White Rock Data Solutions, my consulting firm, uh, you know, right before COVID. And my very first client was Bitfor. And so I had the good fortune to start working with a company January 1st, 2020, last year, and uh, worked with you know the leadership, um, consulting with the leadership advise the leadership on go to market and selling into finance and product and and things like that. To my surprise, in April 2021, this year, this past April, they asked me, Hey, would you be interested in being our CEO? It was like seriously a uh, surprise to me because um, you know, I was thoroughly enjoying my um my clients in my um advisory firm. But I said, hey, you know, this sounds fantastic. I really like the team. I really like the technology. You know, I love the um extracting valuable insights from unstructured data, the market demand, the market forces all seemed very positive to me. So I took the plunge, I said yes, and I started uh essentially May 1st, at the end of the very end of April. I'm super um, focused on and psyched about the key initiatives we have, which really is, you know, we were kind of generally looking at selling to finance these insights from unstructured data. And as we look at the market and we look at what's happening with ESG and we look at what's happening with supply chain risk and we look at what's happening with commercial lending, you take a look at that and you say, okay, well, that is about a company. It's about what is happening around a company, the outside in view, and it's about where's the risk. And as I've been out speaking with leaders in finance and also at corporations who are focused on sustainability, they're focused on supply chain risk. They're focused on investment research and monitoring risk around companies. It really has become apparent that we have extremely valuable insights around the performance of a company, what the company is actually doing versus what they say they're doing. So it's this outside-in view we were talking about earlier. And so we have been really honing our third-party risk intelligence, And really, really focusing now exclusively on these use cases where our customers are trying to figure out, okay, how do we very quickly get a view? Is this company going to sue us? Is this company meeting their net zero pledges? Is this company polluting the environment? Is this company going to be a default risk? We can very quickly equip our customers with the answer to that for a company, public and private company. And so we've been laser focused on tightening up our models, working on advancing our models. So, you know, we have the precision and recall leading, I'm going to say indicators or leading edge metrics and accomplishment in the world for mining intelligence about public and private companies from unstructured data. And this is the journey we're on and to date. I don't certainly don't take credit for this. The company had launched uh, the ESG product in this space just before I joined and had launched uh, the public and private company intelligence about a year ago, kind of around when COVID was starting. Right. But really being, you know, leading, leading edge in providing this intelligence of the ground game, like what is actually happening on the ground in the subject companies. And so that... I think the world needs to know, you know, leaders of organizations, you you know, you're always trying to present your company in the best light, right? Nobody can fault them for that. I mean, they're always trying to present their company in the best light. We come in as a independent, if you will, independent, I don't want to say surveillance, but kind of is like surveilling the world, scouring the world for the performance of companies in these key areas, business events, ESG events, and then providing that to Wall Street, but also providing it to companies. So they know what Wall Street is looking at about their company.
0: Oh, interesting. So they're, they're hiring their own private eye on themselves to see that they check out. Exactly.
1: <laughs> exactly. That's a great way to describe it. So we're very focused there.
0: That's so fascinating. Um, I want to talk more about ESG, especially because as this year, um, in the last few years, you know, we've had this surge of wildfires and incredible floods and all of these um ecological events that have gotten more intense. And there's finally a lot more buy-in <laughs> and um you know, a lot more focus on environmental initiatives. And I was reading your Twitter. I believe you uh, you retweeted that um, so far, 114 companies have signed the Climate Pledge committing to net zero carbon by 2040. And I wanted to ask about how Bit4 is bringing in insights from this ESG data to track and assess uh, companies' ability or how they're actually doing this, if they're actually doing this, and as a way of sort of combating greenwashing, which has been, as you said, you know, if it's cool to be green, then people are like, oh, we're green now. But having that really become a structural part and intent in the way that companies are working and investors are much more focused on companies that are evolving in that direction, because I think most people are on board now that this, we have to change the way we're operating so that we don't experience more and more of these ecological disasters.
1: Yeah. So what we're doing is um, obviously very important at the whole you know world, the, the move of the world towards more green. And it really you know, it seems over the last year or two that it's, it's, uh, definitely been picking up more steam. Certainly in the US, uh, Europe was, was definitely a leader here. And what, what we do is we equip our customers with the ground game. Like I was talking about earlier, like what's actually happening. So when we are looking at, you know, the various news sources, blog sources, scientific journals sources, and extracting information, data, intelligence, we are looking specifically for, in this case of net zero, we're looking for, you know, GHG emissions, we're looking for air quality, we're looking for different kinds of um, flood risk, we're looking for all different kinds of, I'm gonna say attributes, or you know, events, topics that impact the environment. And then we, we look at that and we look at, is it in favorable light or not, which can be tricky because you can have an article that says the world's largest plastic polluter Coca-Cola is coming out with a paper bottle. That's positive, right? Right. You know, it should be positive, (laughs) but you know, unless the sentiment model is looking at the right language, it might say it's a negative. It might look at the world's largest polluter instead of coming out with a paper bottle. Ah, okay. 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 So language is tricky and, um, you know, we resolve that. We resolve that and then we provide the actual intelligence to companies so that they can companies, which let's say it's corporations or investment managers and asset managers so that they can take this intelligence in and pump it into their models. So it's, it's essentially, we, we like to call it AI ready data so that we don't compete with their Specific secret sauce. We fuel their secret sauce. We fuel their models with our intelligence. Absolute AI
0: is sponsored by Innadata, a leading data engineering company. From startups to enterprise, Innadata delivers ground truth training data and customized AI services and platforms at scale. Learn more at Innadata.com. As you were describing it, um, the model is saying things like favorable or unfavorable or, you know, just as an example. So that, you know, it has an assessment. I'm sure that there's a percentage attached to that, you know, how confident they are. In the favorable versus unfavorable. Is there a line of sight back to the original material that somebody can kind of trace the breadcrumbs back to where that came from? Or is it more black box where all this information of, you know, all of these journals and legal documents and everything has been fed into this and then there's an output?
1: So our clients are typically risk professionals or analysts. So humans. Okay. Okay. We're talking humans. Good. (laughs) We're talking humans who are consuming the intelligence. And so why is that important? Because they want to be able to research. They want to be able to understand why something has, say, a negative score. And they want to be able to drill down all the way to the article. So we provide, yes, we provide a score We also provide in abstract, and we also provide the full article. So we've, you know, the headlines there, the abstracts there, the full articles there. So if they want to, to, depending on how much time they have, right, or how much interest, they can go all the way down to the full article. That link exists to the full article, because we think it's really important to be transparent.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean that that is such a an important topic in in AI right now. It's come up in in all of my conversations, you know, that if these models are coming up with answers to things that, you know, are influencing like you said, um, do we invest in this company or not? That has real-world ramifications, and so we need to be able to uh to kind of see behind the uh what is it uh, in, in the right. wizard of Oz behind the curtain, yeah. <laughs> you know, who's working
1: and yeah. <laughs> making everything happen. It's the, um, the augmented intelligence. Yes. Right. Another way to uh, to interpret AI, the acronym, you know, we're augmenting the intelligence and we're also making it much more efficient. So instead of having to kind of look at a million articles a day, manually, we have a machine, right. A very intelligent machine and series of models that are extracting out that intelligence super fast so that our clients can get that intelligence much more easily and readily and then spend their time making decisions.
0: I wanted to move on to, or back, I guess, to the beginning of our conversation. So you've been really heavily involved in two nonprofits, uh, Girls Who Code, a nonprofit. For, that's on a mission to close the gender gap in tech, as well as STEM ino, the NASA patent innovation competition for students. Talk to me about your persistent advocacy to empower young people and especially girls to pursue STEM and technology and innovation.
1: Yeah, I guess, you know, I think about my own my own journey you know, my own journey and how I discovered a love for technology and engineering. When I went to college, I was a French major. Oh, okay. And then I changed in my freshman year. I mean, it was really lovely reading French history and and other things. But I started going to my science and math classes and I'm like, listen, this in engineering, I thought it was just, you know, thermodynamics was just, it was fascinating So I changed my major in college is when I really, really got interested in engineering and software and technology and the like. And I thought, how do we bring interest earlier to girls in high school and even earlier? And um, when I had that opportunity at Goldman to work with um, Girls Who Code and really opened my eyes to how much of a gap there was. I mean, I kind of knew it and there were very few kind of technologists and engineers around who were women and stuff like that. But what really opened my eyes was Girls Who Code and the work they had done to understand how much of a gap there was and the mission they were on to educate, uh, I think it was a million girls in five years, you know, a very ambitious goals. That really switched me on to needing to do something more. But the first year that, uh, you know, I was helping the firm bring in girls who code, meaning high school girls came in for, you know, uh, a couple of months in the summer to our headquarters. And I saw firsthand lives changed and how the uh, students understood that they may love art, but they can also be interested in technology. You know, they may love fashion, but they could still be interested in technology and they could bring the two together, right? And build a business um, based on fashion. Uh, when I saw Lives Changed, that really solidified, like, I got to stay involved here. I really have to continue to advocate for uh, women. women in STEM, of course you know, promotion opportunities, uh, leadership opportunities for women, but also to bring STEM to younger girls, even even before high school, to middle school students. And there's, there's quite a, a trend there now and a wave there now to get the girls earlier because that's when the boys get interested in video games and everything else. And so let's really focus on bringing technology and um, software development to girls at a younger age. And the thing is, girls learn differently, and they learn more in kind of groups and sharing with each other. And, um, you know, I saw that firsthand with Girls Who Code, and it was really a pivotal moment. And then to see these girls who came from, you know, all different walks of life, and then to see that a bit normalized with the technology so that they were much more on equal footing one with another, regardless of their backgrounds. Their family backgrounds, and get into amazing colleges because of their interest in technology. And their graduation from the program was amazing. So yeah, I'm all for STEM. I'm all for encouraging, you know, boys and girls, but uh, but girls, of course, because we'd like to see our numbers increase. Totally.
0: And have you seen the number of women in STEM in your companies increase as? there has been more support and activism for young women and and girls to get into this area? I
1: think we still have a ways to go. I mean, now that I'm CEO, I have a little more influence, but I think, you know, if you talk to people, they will say that I've been very encouraging of a diverse staff. I find that the best solutions, the best ideas, the best productivity comes from diverse thinking, And bringing that in together, you come up with much better solutions. Honestly, I believe that most of my career, if not all of my career. And so I've tried to take that kind of into every role that I've had. And I would say with different levels of of success. But I think that leaders today, certainly with what's been happening over the last year or two, leaders today are much more understanding that a diverse uh, leadership team is just essential in today's world, it's just essential to understand, to understand your business, to understand your product and to understand your customers. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad to see that, uh, the world, uh, the world's leaders, uh, in companies are waking up a bit to this need. So, um, I'm, I'm pretty psyched about that.
0: I hope so too. And I, I have seen it a little bit and, and hope that it just snowballs in the future. Me too. So my last question is a little goofy, but um, if you were to write a sci-fi novel about the year 2041, what does the world look like and have the robots
1: taken over? What do I think a sci-fi novel would be? I mean, honestly, I think it'd be, you know, 1984 with a new cover. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh, that's bleak. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I know, it's, it's pretty tough. <clears throat> I think um, there, are, there are all different streams underway. And do uh, you know, there's, there's definitely this stream of, you know, as much AI as possible in the world and replacing humans, but then it's, uh, there's this, this very strong counterbalance stream of ethical AI and, you know, where do we draw the line and let's make sure we protect humanity. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think humanity will prevail. And there will be a counterbalance and, you know, we'll come up with homeostasis is my hope. Um, I know hope is not a plan, (laughs) but um, I do think that the counterbalance of ethical AI and explainable AI and, you know, ensuring we do the right thing for mankind will ensure that, you know, as a world, we do the right thing.
0: Well, that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much for chatting with me today, Elizabeth. It was a real pleasure.
1: My pleasure. Yeah. Great, great chatting with you, Melody. And uh, yeah, all the best for the future. Thank
0: you. Thanks for tuning in. We make this program for listeners like you. So if you enjoyed this episode, share it with your community, write a review or drop us five stars. Every little bit helps spread the word. See you next time.